The following is a conversation I had with Butch Phelps from the Muscle Repair Shop. Butch is a knowledgeable guy, everyone. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about the good ways to stretch, the best sports to practice in order to avoid chronic pain, the origin of chronic pain, and much, much more. We also talked about how to read the book a week, how to take better notes. It's just been an amazing conversation. I'm so happy that I could share it with you. But now I'm going to leave you here and I'll let you listen to the interview where we start with the origin of chronic pain. Described as a pain that lasts for more than 30 days. Others have described it as it's something that lasts more than three weeks. I tend to think that it lasts more than 30 days for the most part. Um, so what happens is that over time, especially as we age, we tend to, to not work out and stay as active as we did when we were younger. And so part of the problem comes in that the muscle then starts to shorten. It weakens a little bit, but that shortness of it causes it to feel weak, where in essence it's not truly weak. It's just short and it takes more energy for the body to be able to move in those same directions. So one of the things that I found with people, especially older people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s and older, is that once you start lengthening the muscles through my stretching technique, what happens is that you take the pressure off the joints, you take the pressure off the disc in their back, you take the pressure off the nerves, and now the body can start to move and start to respond the way it did when they were 30 years old or 40 years old. So the thing is, is that when we're young, when we're in our teens, our 20s, and our 30s, our body's pretty new. It's like a brand new car. It's pretty new. Everything's working really well. And we really haven't had the time uh, on our bodies to really cause those muscles to start tightening. And so younger people can tend to get through things much easier than older people can. Older people can do the same thing. But the problem is, is that we, we're, not, we're not aware um, in most of our medical training, we're not aware of the real value of the muscles. We think of the muscles as something doing with strength training, how strong we are, how fast can we move. But in reality is, is that the muscles themselves are actually the only part of the human body that puts pressure on the nerves, put pressure on the joints, and puts pressure on the disc of the back. Um, and that can lead over a long period of time to a disaster in the body that will require surgery. So when you see older people who've had joint replacements and back surgeries and nerve problems and so forth, a lot of those injuries started when they were in their 30s. You mentioned that people who tend to exercise early on in their life tend to not have chronic pain. But is there like rare cases where people do have that? Were there like young men or like, like ex-ultra athletes, you know, people who put a lot of stress in their bodies? Yes. Yeah, and there, there is. And, and the thing is, is it's not so much that where we make a mistake is that most of our research is done on exercise for strength. Um, and when you look at peer-reviewed journals, you'll find thousands of studies on exercise for strength. So what happens is that when people are really driving themselves hard and pushing themselves really hard to get stronger and stronger, thinking that if they do that, they won't have the chronic pain down the road, the, in essence, it's just the reverse will happen. Those people will typically have more damage 
than people who did not. But that doesn't mean that they should not exercise because the ones who did not exercise will have problems with not only uh, the muscles tightening and losing their range of motion, but they'll also have that uh, tied in with the lack of strength in their bodies to hold their bodies upright. So when you see older people who are humped over, they're taking slower steps, slower strides, uh, most of that is due to their body literally tightening up, or, or as we would say, rusting up, and they just don't have the strength to pull themselves back up, nor the freedom. So it's a two-part thing. You need the strength, but you also need the flexibility so that you can use your strength to the optimal level. And, and so, um, so, so basically, really the thing is like train, but don't train really hard. Is that like what's going on here? That, that is really true. For, for the average person in the world, if they really trained hard for 30 to 45 minutes, two times a week, maybe three times max, uh, they would find out that they would have all the strength they would ever need. Now, if you're talking about an elite athlete who is going to the Olympics or playing in professional sports, you're talking about someone who, A, has to work even harder than the average person. But the average person could actually work out 30 minutes, two to three times a week max, um, and would get all the strength that they need for the rest of their lives. Um, but, the, but the important part of that is that they've got to maintain their flexibility. If they don't have their flexibility, then that becomes a problem. So when we talk about flexibility and stretching worldwide, most people, when they think about it, is they think about they're grabbing an arm or a leg or they're twisting their body and they're pulling really, really hard and holding for as long as 15 to 20 to 30 seconds at a time. As long as you're flexible, you can do that and it'd be great. You can watch uh, yogi masters where, you know, they'll get in positions that the rest of us, it kind of blows our mind, but they're not in pain because their body is used to that. Their body can do that. But for the average person getting in those positions, their brain is going crazy with the pain of their back or their knees or their elbows or whatever, because their body's not used to being in that position. So when you're not used to being in that position and you hold it for long periods of time, the brain then goes into the fight or flight syndrome. And at that point, the brain is contracting muscles trying to get you out of that position, which means you're actually doing strength training, not stretching. Wow. And yeah. wow, wow, you know, it's interesting because, uh, so why so you you know uh, I, oh i'm just out of words right now man that, that's pretty <laughs> uh, so, so really like after for example 30 seconds and for example like stretching your calf uh you know your calf muscles that's like you yeah. know a, a pulling exercise like you're trying to uh you know break them down and make them grow so that's kind of like strength training is that what like what this well that's exactly right. So when you think about strength training, you're trying to build your muscles to make them grow and get larger, right? So when you do that, because the muscles cross over the joints of the body, so most of your major muscles connect to two different bones, when you make them tighter, then it actually pulls those two bones closer together, which drives out the fluid in your joints that the body naturally puts in called uh, synovial fluid, which is like an oil. 
um, which makes it lubricant and gives it some cushioning. So when those muscles get tight and they push those bones close together, you actually have less movement in that joint and the joint starts to dry out. So think about a bodybuilder. A bodybuilder works out really hard, got, has huge muscles, but they're always known to be very stiff people. So if, if what we tell people about strength training was true, then the bodybuilder would be the most flexible person on the planet. And we know that's not true. So that's where people wind up having injuries because those bones get pushed closer together. They start to squeeze on nerves. You lose the lubrication in those joints. And when you do that, now you get bone on bone injuries, you get uh, nerve impingements, you get arthritis in the, in the joints. And that just goes down a whole bad road of problems for people for the rest of their lives. Hmm. So following the logic, basically, that means that maybe yoga, yoga would be a better alternative to like lifting weights because again, it builds absolutely. strength, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because when you look at a lot of yoga poses, that takes a lot of strength to hold those poses. It takes a lot of stamina to hold those poses. And so if most people did things like yoga and they actually understood that mind-body connection where the brain controls the muscles. In other words, if you were walking to the edge of a cliff and your brain said, hold on, hold on, don't take any more steps, you could fall off the edge of that cliff. If your brain didn't control your muscles, your legs would go, well, the heck with that, we're gonna keep walking. And so the brain has to have control of the muscles to protect you in case someone's attacking you or you're in any type of danger. And so once you start to put your body in a painful position, all your brain is doing is trying to get you back out of that pain. So for so then, so would it be like, um, I guess, beneficial for people who train really hard and like they don't want to hear that, they just want to keep training hard to just have like longer stretching sessions without like balancing things out? Well, they could do, I mean, you could do that. In other words, if you were uh, a person who was working to get their muscles bigger and stronger and you're really putting a lot of effort, just understand that the harder you work in building your muscles and getting stronger, the longer it's going to take to pull back out to make your muscles looser. So it's, the idea is not, not to be stronger. The idea is that by having the flexibility with the muscle strength, you become even stronger um, than you would normally. So go back to the calves, you were talking about the calf muscles. Now, most people, when they stretch a calf, you know, they'll lean against the wall with one leg behind them and they'll lean into the wall or they'll get on a slant board or they'll get on a curb or a step. So the idea is that most people think that they're stretching their calves. The reality is, is they're stretching their Achilles tendon at the base of the calf muscles and what they're not realizing is that you have four calf muscles. And so those four calf muscles, they control your foot vertically up and down, but they also control your foot laterally from side to side. And one thing that most people don't understand is that it also controls the foot rotationally. So if you look at a golfer, for instance, that's hitting a golf ball, they talk about rotation of the hips so that they can get more club head speed by giving the, the club more range of motion before it hits the ball. What they don't understand is that 
everybody's trying to torque their hips to get more rotation, but that rotation starts in their ankles and their feet using their calf muscles. But the thing is, is that we don't train people to stretch those inside outside calf muscles so that they can rotate with the inside outside hamstrings and work also with the rotating muscles in the hips. So you get a lot of people in golf, for instance, who are trying to force their hips into rotation, working actually against their calf muscles, and they wind up with lower back pain. So the calf muscles are probably the most important set of muscles in your body for freedom of movement, because when the calves are tight, a human being will take a shorter stride, which can lead to knee issues, it can lead to hip issues, it can lead to back issues, it can even lead to neck and shoulder issues because if you watch somebody taking a shorter stride, they will tend to, to lead with their nose. In other words, they're having head forward posture, which puts a lot of pressure at the base of their neck and it started down in their calves and feet. Hmm. And how do we avoid it? Like, how do we emphasize flexibility and not strength when stretching? Like, how do we convince the brain to not get into fight or flight mode? Well, so a couple of things. So when you are when you are working to stretch the muscle themselves, you never want to hold that stretch, especially if it's tight, for more than five seconds at a time. And the reason for that is that your every muscle in your body has what's called a myotatic reflex or a stretch reflex. And when you go beyond that five seconds, you set off that stretch reflex and the brain immediately tries to contract the muscle. So what you want is that when you go into those positions and you start to, to allow the muscle to let go, it's not the pressure from your hands where you're pulling those muscles, but it's the brain itself your brain allowing that muscle to relax as you breathe out. And, and if you watch people in yoga, for instance, I mean, as they're holding their poses, they're breathing out, they're centering themselves, they're allowing their body to relax. They're not forcing anything. And so when I started incorporating that with the stretching techniques that I have, then all of a sudden the body started to soften, the body started to free up and, lo and loosen and I would get people in their 80s and 90s talking about how much more energy they had. And the reason being is that they didn't have to work so hard to move from point A to point B like, like young people. And how long did it took you to develop these techniques? I mean, what did you do? Like, how did you research all, uh, all of it so you can develop them? Like, how did that happen? What's the story behind it? Okay, so, so the story behind it was I was about 40 years old at the time. That was 20 years ago. Uh, I enjoy working in my yard, gardening and so forth. And every time I would spend two, three, four hours out in my yard on a Saturday, uh, my, I would have severe low back pain for two to three days, sometimes four days. And I would try traditional treatments, uh, everybody would suggest. And it would help for maybe 24 hours max, and then it would come back. So I got involved, I went to a massage therapy school thinking, well, maybe if I learn about that, that might help solve my problem. And it did for a little bit, but again, like everything else, 24 hours, it was back. Um, then I was introduced to a man named Aaron Mattis who uh, created what was called active isolated stretching. And it was a different type of stretching technique and he allowed me to study with him for six months. So I did, and as I started studying his technique, 
I realized the value of what he was doing, but I also started to see there were some things that could be done better. Um, and then finally, I went to a class on dementia, and uh, the, gen the gentleman who was a doctor started talking about the brain's role with the muscles and how the two play together. And that's when the light went off. And it was like, wait a minute. So what we're missing in the stretching and what we're missing in the massage is that the person that's, that's on the table, the person doing the stretching, their brain is not really working with the muscles to let that go. And when I started putting those three things together, all of a sudden my, my pain stopped happening and I could go and work in my yard for two days in a row and not have any back pain, three days in a row and no back pain. And that's when 15 years ago, I started teaching um, other people how to do that. And I would see people with things like plantar fasciitis that they had had for sometimes months at a time. Um, and it would go away in five, six days. I see people who had low back pain where they could barely stand up and within one or two visits and them working at home with what I taught them, the pain would be gone. Um, and it was amazing to, to watch the changes in people's lives. But it was a matter of taking three things and putting them together and then studying how the muscles relate to the bones were the primary things. Of course, you could add that to the nerves and the blood vessels as well. But more importantly, it was how they relate to the bones. And all of a sudden, you could start seeing clearly where most of these injuries people were dealing with were things that could be solved without expensive gadgets. So, you know, you, you get people with, with feet that are sore and they'll put orthotics in their shoes. They have special shoes with arch supports and heel supports. And the reality is, is for most people, those things actually create this in their body. And, you know, you mentioned that you went to classes and you went to different mm -hmm. experts to learn that, to connect the things. But when you got the big picture like that, there is another way to stretch and like be flexible and avoid crying pain. How did you you know, continue to do that. Did you read like a lot of literature? Did you test that on yourself right away? Like how did, how did you make, make that idea into a reality? Really? I just want to see the process. Okay, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I did all of the above. In other words, I, as I started testing it on myself, I was my first guinea pig. And even today, when I see something that's intriguing, I test it on me first because A, I want to see if it works. And B, I want to see if I can do it. And, and if so, how can other people do it without it taking up a lot of time in their day? So that was the first thing I started doing as I started putting them together. Then once I started putting it together, the question came to my head was, why is that happening? Why does that seem to work? And I would dig in and read peer-reviewed journals. I would read books from doctors and, and therapists, uh, looking and understanding the mechanics of, of how the muscles are working with the bones. And, and see, so, so much of what we learn, especially in school, and I, I just finished a degree at 58 in aging sciences, so much of what we learn in school about the bones than about the muscles. And we have like 213 bones in our body, but we have like 650 to 700 muscles in our body. The, the number goes from 650 to 700. Most of what I've heard has been 653. But we don't spend a whole lot of time on those 653 muscles 
we, we, we learn the names, we learn when they attach to the body and we learn the body part that it moves. But how does that muscle affect the, the joint itself? How does it affect the bones themselves? We don't really spend a lot of time getting into that. And if you go to a doctor and you say, my knee hurts or my shoulder hurts, they're going to shoot an x-ray. They're going to shoot an MRI. And again, they're looking at the bones. So if they see bones that are closer together, they're attacking the bone. And that tends to be where people go. And, and so when I've spoken in front of doctors and I would talk to them about the muscles, and sometimes I would ask them a question, do you know any muscleologists? And, and they looked at me really funny. And I said, isn't that funny? We have a cardiologist for the heart. We have orthopedics for the bones. We have neurologists for the nerves. But we don't have a muscleologist for the muscle. And I was amazed at how many doctors had said to me, you know, you're right. There's nobody that's really studying the muscles beyond the strength training. And then when I started getting, digging into peer-reviewed journals, I mean, I, I could find just tons and tons of peer-reviewed journals on how to make it bigger, faster, stronger. But when it came to, to how to really release the body, um, I could not find anything beyond maybe five or six good studies on yoga, and that was about it. And, and so that was a big part of the problem. Why do you think in school and again, like in science at all, like we put more emphasis on the bone than the muscles? Why do, where do you think that originates from? I, I think part of it comes from, number one, they're easier to see. Uh, number two, they're easier to fix. Because if a bone is broken or, or a bone is damaged, you can do surgery and go in and fix that. It's pretty clean. Uh, and, and I can put it on an x-ray and I can show you then exactly uh, what I did. When it comes to the muscles, because the muscles are as emotional as they are physical, now you have to spend a little more time with that person, understanding a little bit of their personality. Do they have a driven personality where they seem to be tense? Are they living a stressful life? Because the stress in your life or the, the mentality that you have in your life can also cause those muscles to tighten as if you were lifting weights. Uh, as, as one doctor said to me when I was learning about this stuff, you've never seen a stressed guy look relaxed. They always seem to look very stressed, obviously. And so when it comes to the muscles, it's A, it's harder to see. B, the emotion runs into it. So now that becomes another problem. It's not black and white. And see if I can just give you a shoe or a brace or something to, to put on, that's an easy fix and I can make good profit off of that, the bottom line. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And it's complicated. I mean, it's like you have to spend time with people with a muscle injury uh, to really understand, you know, where did they feel the pain? What causes the pain to happen? What were they doing when, it ha when the pain started? Um, and then if, if there's no definitive answers, you know, then what is your life like? What, what are you doing? You know, or you have a high stress job or, and sometimes you'll hear people that they'll, they'll have four or five different strength training classes they're going to. And you start to realize that this person is pushing really hard. So they're creating stress. So it takes a little time. And for a lot of the medical establishments, they don't want to spend that time. Mm, so we, we're going to continue on that topic, but I just want to ask you, why did you decide to get a degree uh, in aging sciences? Are uh, they, uh, yes. you know, at 58? Was that the answer? Yeah. Like, so why did you decide to do that? What, what prompts you to do that? 
it was interesting. It was it was uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the first reason was it was going to further my knowledge in, in how we as human beings age uh, through the various ages, 20, 30, 40, and so on. Uh, I also wanted to see and understand if there was some way that we could start doing things in our 20s and 30s and 40s that could prevent us from having to deal with a lot of the common chronic pain that people in their 70s and 80s are dealing with today. Plus, up until this point, people just didn't live as long as they do today. So we don't have a lot of, of research behind people in their 80s and 90s that we can turn to to say, oh yeah, 92, this is typically what happens. At 88, this is typically what happens. So I was intrigued from that aspect and, and dealing with the muscles um, and dealing with the fact there's so much emotion there then looking at how we age physically and, psychology and uh, psychologically uh, was important in that area. The other part of it was I wanted to go back to school um, because I was intrigued with how things have changed. In other words, classes that I took in say 2015 and 2016, I had taken them back in 1980 and 1981. And to my, it was amazing to see when you realize things are changing, you realize people come up with new theorems and so forth, but to see how the maths and sciences had changed since I was in school before, it brought me into the 21st century to understand better the tools that we have. And number two, uh, to get a better view of, of the human body that I didn't have when I was in school, when I was in my 20s and 30s. So that was the, the two part thing of doing that. Interesting. So it seems like you're always adapting to any stuff, right? Like, you know, yep. you, know you always self, like like to self-educate or like normally educate yourself into these topics. So, um, so did you have like any moments where you felt like, oh, this is too complicated? Yeah, I want to do it, but it's like too too much. You know, what are these? Uh, what is that terminology? This and that. How would you deal with the boring parts of that practice? Well, there are times. I mean, sometimes you look at things and it's like, man, I feel like I'm in over my head. And and um, I always go back to because I, I try to read a book a week, and I always go back to uh, who do I know in that field. Uh, where can I go to get information about that particular topic? And I find people that I can contact or sources I can contact to help me understand that. So, you know, I mean, now, like, you know, I'm, I'm working to bring my business more online. And so it's learning about the intricacies of social media, not just how to get on and do it, but you know, when I'm looking at the metrics, how to find that? Well, I don't really have that knowledge. And sometimes you look at it and it's like, wow, this is like overwhelming. And so I connect with local organizations that many of them teach this stuff for free that I can sit down with and spend a, a few days with, a few weeks with, whatever it takes to learn the terminology so that I can find the professional and actually have the knowledge to ask questions to get the results that I'm looking for. And I think that that for so many people, uh, everything that you start, I mean, imagine it, at 55, I had not been in school in 20 years, and, it, and at 55, I go back to a university setting, and I'm, I'm in a classroom with people who are 18 to 23 years of age, 
and I'm being thrown all of these new technological toys, uh, things that I had never experienced in my life. And I had to immediately adapt and, and come on board with them. So what I did was two things. Number one, I, I would go to the sources at the school that could teach me how to use the technology quickly, which I did. And then I would talk to young people and get to hear from them um, their perspective on it. And, and I picked up a lot of tips from them because they would use, had used it far more than I have. And, and so anytime that I get into that position that I feel overwhelmed, typically I'll take a breath, walk away for a minute, and then think about who can I contact, what sources can I go to to try to clear uh, the fog so that I can do better. I think that can be applied to any other field, right? Because, you know, at the beginning, just learn the terminology so you can have a good conversation with the professional. I think that's really yeah. applicable to anything. So I, I guess I'm going to advise the listeners. They're probably doing it, but anyway, I would advise them to take note on that because that's pretty interesting way of looking at things on learning. But why exactly a book a week? Well, there's, there's several reasons. Number one, I'm, I'm always intrigued... I'm always intrigued, A, with the mind of the human body, even though that my focus has been muscles. And I'm always intrigued with, with where are we going as, as a world society? Um, and, and how does that play out in people's lives? Those are some areas that they're sort of like a hobby as well as, as part of my profession. But the book a week allows me to, to learn and unlearn and relearn new ideas. And it's like, you know, one of the authors that I, I listened to, his name is Adam Toffler, um, said that the new illiterate of the world won't be people who can't read or write, but it'll be people who cannot learn and unlearn and then relearn. And it's sort of like my whole life has been learn and unlearn and relearn because, you know, I was born in 1960s, so life in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s was vastly different than life is today. And it's about letting go of things that no longer serve you and then bringing in things that do. And sometimes that means letting go of things that you really like. Uh, but the reading a book a week gives me different perspectives from people from all over the world. Uh, and I'm always intrigued with, with no matter who I'm talking to, uh, their perspective on things uh, because mine is not 100% uh, right and it helps me to adjust uh, my flawed thinking in my life. And how do you avoid information overload? Because reading a book a week, wow, man. I mean, a lot of people try to do that. Not a lot succeed. Yeah. Those that do, they see benefits, but I'm always wondering how do they avoid the information overload? Well, that, my wife always asks me that question because she, she keeps saying to me, my brain is like a sponge. Uh, you know, for, for me, I, I love learning new things. Um, I love seeing things from a different perspective. And I, I guess my entire life, I've been the kind of person that no matter who I met, I would often wonder what would it be like to be in that person's shoes? Wonder what it would be like to live that person's life? And I guess that... that that curiosity has always stayed with me. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, when I talk to friends and they're asking me questions and it's like, they always laugh because they say, you always have this information on all these different topics. And it's just the exposure. I mean, it, you know, 
there's a, a lot of topics or some topics that I like to take a deeper dive into. And then there's some topics that, yes, fun to know, that's great, let's move on to something else. Uh, so I just sort of uh, compartmentalize them into what are the ones I want to take a deeper dive on, and then I do. And what are the ones that, yeah, it was nice to know, and it's good to log in the back of my head and just leave it there. And how do you think a person can develop that love, love for learning? Do you think that passion has been like something that's been genetically ingrained in you or something you've developed really? That curiosity. I think it's something I think it's something that, that I've developed. I mean, I I've enjoyed learning most of my life, but I, I think that um, one of the things that I I've learned by reading different books from different authors. Uh, and even books that sometimes ideologically I would disagree with, I would still read them because I wanted to see their perspective. Um, and what it's done is that it's, it's helped me to better understand the world that I live in. It helps me to better understand why people do what they do, whether it's in government or business or what have you, so that instead of getting uh, emotionally upset about it, I can actually think logically about it and say, you know what, I may not agree with it, but I understand why they're doing it. And, and so one of the professors I had said to me that if, if you speak to someone who you just totally disagree with, he said, the first thing you want to do in your mind is, could you take that person's stance and defend it? And I'm like, why on would I want to do that? And he said, well, if you can take their stance and defend it, even though you disagree with it, then you better understand where they're coming from. And so when you're presenting an argument to them, you have a better opportunity to, to really not just not win, but to have a collaboration with that person. And when you do that, then all of a sudden you get the best of both worlds. That's a great. That's a great quote. So, do we consider the quote? I think that's. A, I think that's a great quote. By, by the way, um, that professor, <laughs> wise guy. Um, yeah. So when you read, uh, like, do you have in mind the thought that oh, I need to learn this, or you just like you like it? You just read for pleasure, and that's how you memorize it. How does that process look like? How do you memorize the things you read? So, so there's a couple of things, and, and you're right on both counts. Most of the time, it's things that I, I want to read about, that I enjoy reading about. Uh, what, sometimes it's things that I need to learn because I'm in the middle of doing something and I need to read it and figure it out. The thing is, is that if it's something that you really want to do, uh, in the case of I need to read this to learn it, then all of a sudden, as you're reading that material, instead of pushing so hard like you would in a school book because you're forced to read it, what happens is you start to, to read for a while, take a moment, reflect on what you've read, start to put those things into place. Sometimes I'll even take notes and, and start to piece things together so that I can get a clearer understanding of, of what the author was talking about. Now, if it's something I enjoy reading, even, even with that, sometimes it can be very complicated, especially if I'm reading books about the future of the world or uh, about a company that, that I'm interested in, I, have, I still will stop and reflect, take moments to, to piece these things together to see how they fit in together. And I've even had some books where I would go back 
and read the chapter that I just read, or maybe two chapters before, just to make sure I understand the connection of what the author was trying to get across to me. So it, it's something that it, it, most people, when they think of reading, they sit there and they, and they force themselves to read, I'm going to read this book or read it. And it's not like I sit there and do that. It's like, you know, I have a books on my phone, a Kindle on my phone, or sometimes I have audio books um, that if I'm working out or I'm driving or whatever, I'll listen to. And, and so it's not like that I'm, I'm having to force myself to do that. It's like, this is what I do for pleasure is, is learning this material. And then it becomes much easier. But if I said to you, okay, you've got to read a book a week and I'm giving you a book every Monday, that would be very difficult. And it's the same thing as working out. If you understand the benefits of working out and you're going out to do that workout and it, you enjoy doing it, that's one thing. But if I'm going to do a workout and it's, and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got to get my waistline down to 32. I've got to get my arms up to so-and-so. I've got to get my, my body weight. To, and I'm pushing that way. That becomes a job. And when that becomes a job, the chances of failure are pretty high. And so it, it's about understanding why you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And then all of a sudden, as you become passionate about it, then anything you read that's associated with it or can be used to bring it back around to better understand why you're doing what you do, that's when you succeed and that's when you become excellent at what you do. And I think for so many people, we're looking to get from A to B without really enjoying the journey from A to B. I mean, what I, what I do for a living, uh, I would do for free if, if I didn't need the money because it's just, it's just something that I love doing. Now, everybody has a passion. We don't spend a whole lot of time in helping people learn how to find that passion. But once you find that passion, getting up in the morning and going to work or getting up and doing whatever it is you want to do I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. It'd be like somebody saying, hey, let's go on vacation to, to the Maldives or whatever. Who's going to say, no, I, I don't want to do that. That sounds boring. No, everybody's ready to jump on the plane and take off and go. When you find your passion, it's like going on vacation every day. And, and that's where so many people miss out. Yeah, that's, that's 100% right. The passion just kills the perception that what you're doing is a chore. Is a chore. Uh, that's pretty powerful. Um, so what books would you recommend us to read? Like something that really impacted your life, you know, uh, something that would benefit the average person really, not someone who's a knowledgeable or expert in some, just like a book that is going to uh, impact someone's life based on your opinion, really impact someone. So, so there's, a, there's a couple of books that, I mean, there's one called uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think from a guy named Peter Diamandis. Uh, and, and these books are going to be more about where we're heading over the next 10 years, economically, healthcare-wise, personally. Uh, then there's an author named David Houle, that's H-O-U-L-E, and he wrote a book called 2020 and the Finite Earth. Um, and then Adam Toffler, who wrote Revolutionary Wealth. The reason I bring those books up is that as we look at what we're doing in our lives, whether it's a, a job or whether it's a business we want to start, whatever it is we want to do in our lives, if you can get a feel for where we're heading in the future, uh, technologically, uh, healthcare-wise, um, 
income-wise, climate-wise, when you get a feel for that, you can start to understand a little better where people may need you. So in other words, you don't want to get into an industry that probably has a lifespan of three to five years because the technology will change and they no longer need you. And therefore your business or whatever you do dies away. But you want to look ahead to see that, that the things that I enjoy doing, will they still be around? And, and, if, and if, the, if it looks like it might not be, can it be adapted? And that's one of the things these guys talk about is the effect of technology in the sense of the electric cars taking off, homes are going to change, uh, people's lifestyle. You know, with the pandemic going on today, all of a sudden you start to see stocks in, in telehealth climb by 4,000%. You start to see uh, the stocks in, in shopping from home go through the roof. Um, and so what will happen over time is, is that instead of companies having to spend a tremendous amount of money on the location of a business, their money is going to be better spent on the online sector and then have a warehouse outskirts of town that's going to be far cheaper to maintain. And robotics will do a lot of the stocking and so forth. And they'll still use humans for delivering and, and, and some of that. But it, it's like understanding that change ahead of time. So there have been major companies that did not do that. You know, Blockbuster has always been a prime example of not understanding that Netflix was going to take them out. Um, you know, Kodak, who, who actually invented the digital camera, uh, lost out because they didn't see the future in it. So reading those books and understanding the changes environmentally, technologically, economically, as well as in healthcare can start to help us look at where we need to be thinking five, 10, 15 years down the road, uh, where we need to be. So many of these guys will say that 80% of the jobs in 2030, we haven't even thought of yet. And it's like, so, that's where getting that thought process and going forward looking ahead is going to serve us much better than what we've done in the past 50 years. I, I got them all paper will be sure to add them to my reading list. Thanks for that, man. And it's, it's so awesome to think about the future and all. And how do you, how do you plan on like make it, uh, allowing your stretching, uh, you know, movements to thrive during the future? Like, how do you plan to adapt into the online age? How do you plan to do that? All right, so, so a couple of things. Number one, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some software now that when it comes to describing to people, number one, what truly causes their pain, uh, because when it comes to muscles, most of the time where the pain is, the cause is the opposite side. There's software there now that I can put online uh, and actually educate people about their specific issue. They can see the body part moving. I can highlight the muscles that I, that I want them to understand is causing those problems. And then I can actually uh, start to show them through video as well as things like Zoom or Microsoft Teams as to how to do those things at home. And so the whole key to it is the person doing the work at home. You know, the, the idea has been in the past that if I have an ache or a pain, I go see my doctor, doctor checks me out physically, he gives me a pill, a shot, they may do surgery, and I go back home. 
I had nothing to do with that treatment. And so with what I do in my stretching is that we want to, we want people to understand that they need to be a part of the treatment plan. And even for doctors and, and, and other healthcare professionals, the, the patient has to be a part of the treatment plan because if I have a heart problem and I'm overweight and my doctor doesn't talk to me about losing the weight and I don't go home and do the work to lose the weight, then everything he's doing with my heart is a temporary fix because as hard as he's working to keep me alive, by not helping out, I'm working just as hard to kill me. And so the idea behind what I'm doing is the key is, is people doing the work at home. Because when you think about stretching, you think about a dog or a cat, every day they'll stretch three, four, five times a day uh, for just a few, minutes, a few seconds, a few minutes to a few seconds at a time. Human beings need to do the same thing. And it's like once they learn how to do that and they get that, then all of a sudden all they need me for is a guide to help them understand what caused the problem. And then I can give them the tools to go out and do that. That's, that's an awesome strategy. So uh, before we, before I ask the last question, but I'm going to allow you to share all your social media contacts here, man, your blog and everything. I'm sure people are going to be dying to connect with you. So please share them out. Okay, so my, my website is musclerepairshop.com. And on my website, I have a blog that's there as well. Uh, you can contact me uh, through the website and uh, I can talk to you there. If you're local here in Sarasota, obviously you can schedule on and come in. I am on Facebook at uh, the Muscle Repair Shop, facebook.com Muscle Repair Shop. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, linkedin.com Butch Phelps, that's P-H-E-L-P-S. And on Instagram at uh, instagram.com at Muscle Repair One. Alrighty, awesome. And now the last question uh, is, what's a quote or words you live by? Maybe one, maybe a couple. What are the quotes you live by? Well, one of them I've lived by a lot is by a guy named T. Harv Eker, and it's called, How You Do Anything is How You Do Everything. And so what that means is that if I lazily do things in my personal life, the chances I'll do the same thing in my professional life. And some people will say, well, I'm only late because it's Saturday. Well, they're probably late Monday through Friday too. So I always live by that. Uh, one of my cool things is that no matter whether it's a day off or a day at work, I always look at how you do anything is how you do everything. Uh, that's probably one of my favorites. All right, yeah, awesome. So, Butch, thank you for coming here on the show and dropping all these valuable bombs for almost 50 minutes. I hope listeners got a lot from this. I sure as hell did. And we wish you again a great week. Thank you for making our day. And thank you. Yeah, man, it was an awesome experience. Okay, man, it was good to meet you.